Hello, this is Sibylla Smith. Welcome to my podcast, Got Punctum. Here we highlight ideas, inspiration, and challenges of contemporary photography. We unpack the process of creating a photo book. We speak in the universal language of photography, contributing to the global conversation on visual culture. I am an independent curator, consultant, and educator. My trademark program, Concept Aware, provides a framework to advance your ideas in image and text. I work with photographers to illuminate, elevate, and amplify their work. In collaboration, I focus on establishing context for your concepts. My interviews on Got Punctum demonstrate how I develop a frame around the creative practice of each guest. We come together to understand how they see and to discuss why it matters. I'm so glad you're here. Let's get started. Welcome. I am excited to be here and I'm excited that you have joined us and I want to introduce Rita who I had to laugh and I said, this is a treat to have time together. And unlike all the other times before in our short exchanges, we're actually sitting down and we actually have time. We're not on the move or rushing somewhere. I met you, Rita, when you had an exhibition at Photoville in 2015, and you were not there when I first saw the work, and then I tracked you down, and I thought, I have to explore who is this person, what did you just display, and I had to let you know, I love semiotics too, it was like, <laughs> oh my gosh, and I I sought you, um, ran you down, and you were literally leaving Photoville, and you were running down the sidewalk, and you had your suitcase in hand, and I'm just running alongside you. That was the first time that we met, and then I remember in our short exchanges over the years, another funny one was I was in a cab on the way to the airport and called you to interview you for an article, and you two were in transit, <laughs> and it's like, <laughs> so the fact that we're actually sitting down and not moving is really, really fun. And then this idea that we had a moment last week at Paris Photo is hilarious because what are the chances of us running into each other? Because that was quite a deep and moving crowd, but we did. So I'm super glad. So here we get to unpack your most recent five-year project that's now an award-winning documentary film and a hefty electrifying book, The Forest for the Trees. And in our book group, I introduce my guests, not with a list of your accomplishments and titles, but with my understanding of how you see. And I have been considering how you see in all these layered ways over all these past years. Rita, you are the consummate teacher. You are led by curiosity, fueled by conviction, driven by passion, compelled to understand, and to empathically share your hard-earned discoveries. You are a high baller 
of the first order. And this is tree planting lingo that I learned from your book for someone who goes above and beyond. To call you tenacious is a gross understatement. Your DNA has an intrepid gene. You seemingly embody a resolute fearlessness. And I do not believe that you do not feel fear, but I imagine your doggedness to pursue deep knowledge overrides it. In all your projects, you embed yourself in the community you are exploring. Soldiers in Afghanistan, families of inpatient mental, pa mental uh, patients, drug users in Vancouver, you become viscerally aligned with the environment of those you investigate. You don't witness, you participate. Your stamina and sheer physical strength is outstanding. Filmmaker Don McKellar aptly wrote in the limited text in your book, quote, she likes to immerse herself long-term until the work seems to come from the inside out, quote. And a big aha moment happens when you realize that this latest project is an autobiographical one, a coming home of sorts. You return to your roots, pun intended. Rita was a tree planter. You planted a half a million trees yourself. You were a crew leader on the cut blocks of Western Canada for almost a decade. Here you honed the skills of being all in. The discipline, the competition, the ruthless physical stamina. It seems like a cross between an endurance sport and a military training ground. Looking at the dates of your tree planting days, I was in a vastly different place in my life. I was living in New York City, completing my graduate degree and looking for an apartment in Brooklyn. Now I see you traded a sack and a shovel for a camera and video equipment. You seem to thrive within complex and paradoxical situations. You wrestle with extremes and are driven to illuminate the contradictions of our human nature. Connectivity and communication are your field sites. You are part anthropologist, philosopher, historian, sociologist, semiotic, and documentarian. When I consider your creative process, the analogy that came to mind is of the woodworking tool, the lathe. In looking up how to actually spell the word, I discovered it was used in ancient Egyptian times and it earned the name of the mother of machine tools because it was the ground from which all manner of industrial inventions were inspired. I thought of you as I see your creative pursuits act like a lathe. You take your tools and you plane down a condition, a situation, a community, or an experience. You set it spinning on its axis and you whittle it down to its essence. 
I first witnessed this with your book, Looking for Marshall McLuhan in Afghanistan. You were embedded with the US Marines in 2011 on an experimental social media initiative, Base Track. Its intention was to strengthen smartphone communication between the troops and their families. For you, it precipitated a deep dive into semiotics, what I would consider the warfare of communicating, of meaning, of transmitting connection. How do you share felt experience, felt sense and experience? It's that strange place that bridges the gap. It's about creating understanding. Well, you've done it again by going back to the forest, the wilderness, and illuminating the way things change and how they stay the same, the contradictions, the compassion for the human experience. You draw on your history with literature, painting, and you use the arts to provide a bridge of understanding. You successfully merge art and documentary, creating what you note is engaged photography. Your allegorical images, this book of 160 color images conjures all manner of memory and myth while holding the hardcore reality of logging, backbreaking physical labor as a choice to earn a living. And that to get these images, you lived on the camps and you ran alongside the tree planters with a couple hundred pounds of equipment over hundreds of kilometers in all seasons in a vast wilderness. So the starry nights that you captured can feel dreamy, almost romantic. And yet they belie the truth that there are real bears and animals able to threaten your survival. So I'm so glad I finally can sit down <laughs> and get to how you do see and how you use this lathe of your mind. It's so interesting because you're taking away at the same time that you're connecting. Um, so I am so glad you're here. Thank you for my lengthy, uh, the time to give you a lengthy introduction and, and welcome Rita. Uh, well, thank you so much for having me and for that wonderful, wonderful introduction. <laughs> You're welcome. You're welcome. I, I don't know and would love to start with what's the, the etiology of this project? Like when and how did it formulate for you? Okay. Well, so as you said, um, I myself planted trees for a decade. Uh, I started in 84 to 93 and by the way, I was also in grad school while I was planting trees. Well, I started planting when I was in second year and I turned 20 years old in the cut block. And then I planted through grad school and did my, my master's in uh, comparative literature in French and English, you know, hence my interest in semiotics, which I then, you know, have always carried with me into the, the world of photography that I, I got into more intensely. Later, although photography was also always an important part of my life and uh, 
I always say I was, you know, I was, I was born with a, with an, with a, an eye for lighting and composition. And I, I always remember as I do now seeing the world through its exposures and shadows and uh, bright and brightnesses and composition, you know, like composition, I feel is an, is an innate sense, you know, like, mm -hmm. um, no one has no one had to teach me composition. It just comes naturally. And when something isn't well composed, it's it's something I feel more in my uh, my spine, you know, and my gut than I do in my mind. And uh, which is actually a a quote I love from Vladimir Novikov, the you know the renowned uh, Russian Russian writer in one of his, his uh, essays on literature, where he says about great writing, that it's something you feel not so much as in the mind as in the spine. And I feel that composition for sure and color and light are the same thing. Um, so uh, I left planting um, in 1993 to pursue photography. And that eventually, you know, it's a longer story, but that eventually took me to conflict zones actually pretty quickly. I, I worked in, I actually took me to the film industry first where I worked as a lighting specialist and that lighting has had a big influence on my photography ever since. I appreciate and I use the power of artificial light as another way of exerting my vision over what I see and controlling how people take it in. And when I was working in conflict zones, particularly later in Iraq, when I was living uh, with the American cavalry in the desert, I spent two months living in the desert with 150 cavalry soldiers and, you know, never showering and eating next to nothing or, you know, uh, military rations and sleeping on the ground none of and, th and those things didn't bother me like there were lots of things to be afraid of that were challenging and difficult and you know photographing in those situations with the dust and how to power your gear you know like i would charge things on the batteries of the tanks and uh but not showering and being with 150 men in the desert like at least those things weren't a problem for me um because of my experience tree planting and living in bush camps and uh working in management in bush camps taught me a lot about logistics. I mean, I had a truck driver license from a very young age and mm. that also helped me get a job in film, by the way. I mean, how many 25 year old women have like the truck driver licenses and, uh, and was, you know, extremely physically fit. Um, and when people ask me what prepared me for working in conflict zones, uh, I said, tree planting in Canada, which surprised people because on the surface, tree planting doesn't sound all that hard because mm. people can't imagine the kind of tree planting that's represented in my book, that's represented in my film, this professional industrial sports level piecework tree planting that pretty much is invented in the late 60s and early 70s. Uh, in conjunction with the, you know, the rise of the environmental movement and the introduction of new uh, mechanized cutting machinery, where mm -hmm. suddenly way more trees are being cut, people are more aware of what's happening to the environment, you know, and it's not a coincidence, of course, and um, 
a void sort of opens up where there is a need, a desperate need for better ways to and faster ways to plant trees. And a group of young people in Western Canada, uh, almost through a loophole, pitch the Canadian government. And this happening in the United States at the same time, by the way, they pitch uh, contracts and they say, we're gonna be able to plant more trees than loggers have ever planted or then, you know, uh, I mean, planting wasn't, first of all, taken so seriously. It was being studied, but it was always considered the lowest job in the forest because North America is built on logging, was built on logging, and it had all these romantic connotations of nation building and clearing the land. And so it's taken a very long time for tree planting to be considered with any kind of dignity. And it's still it's still not given enough credit from my perspective, which goes to your question, what made me want to make this film? What made me want to dedicate five years of my life, um, you know, just as I turned 50 to this grueling uh, endeavor? I mean, uh, everything I did before was grueling as well. And in fact, in, in tree planting prepare me to apply my skills and learn the learn skills in conflict zones in the film industry, which is also very tough. And then in turn, everything I learned working in film and working in conflict for you know, more than 20 years, I could take all those skills and bring them back to the forest and operate at a very high, very efficient level in very challenging circumstances without a lot of money, without a lot of help. Um, because I do work a lot alone. It helps me with my immersion into the projects. It frees me to work for way more longer than if I had a crew uh, mm. I had to pay or rely on, or you know, if I had to find enough people who would tolerate doing that kind of work. Um, it wasn't easy finding people to help me, but I was lucky. I hired uh, young women for the most part, and their, uh, what they needed was, no, they didn't need to know anything about photography because I know every, I knew everything I needed to know about that. They just needed to be super athletic and good on their feet and prepared to work unbelievably hard and like it. And not everybody is like that. Tree planters are like that. As you said, who is drawn to this kind of super challenging physical labor. I mean, Don McKellar says it in, in the uh, conversation we have. He says, I love nature as much as the next person. But when he goes into nature, he wants to like lay back on the dock and read a book or, you know, mm -hmm. pick mushrooms. But who wants to go to the bush and do back breaking labor in nature? It's a certain kind of person. It and th these are things that I explore in the book. These are things that I explore, you know, much more deeply in the film. And of course, I have that drive. Like you did, I thought, a really beautiful and touching description of me that I think is quite accurate. And it's the same thing that that uh, that people bring to being skilled tree planters. And I think skilled athletes as well. But um, being a great athlete doesn't guarantee someone's going to be a good tree planter. Like there's something more to it. And there's also something about that shared experience of going through something difficult together that to me relates to the experience soldiers have mm -hmm. and 
you know, there's been so much poetry and literature written by soldiers about camaraderie and the whole idea of brothers in arms, you know, and I immediately think of that, uh, the, the incredible Dire Straits album, Brothers in Arms, you know, mm. with that unbelievably moving lyrics and sound and the power behind that idea. And, um, you know, through all my work embedded with soldiers who, you know, by the way, are around the same age as the tree planters, most of them, right? Mm -hmm. uh, late teens, early 20s, up to maybe 30, and except for the, the commanders and some of the senior officers. And um, uh, and I, I spent a lot of time thinking about that relationship. And in my book, Looking for Marshall McLuhan in Afghanistan, which also looks at technology and the way that technology replaces humor and interaction and face-to-face uh, -face communication and language and you know drones being a really extreme example of that. And where you have a drone pilot operating from the desert in Nevada, a drone flying over Afghanistan that you know he might be observing a target for weeks and at one point, you know, maybe kills a target and then. Uh, you know, rather than being amidst other soldiers where not only do they have camaraderie and a sense that they're in this together, but they also know that they themselves are in physical danger. And it helps rationalize and justify the, the violence because they are themselves at risk of direct violence. And one could theorize that, you know, if you're a drone pilot in Nevada, you're also theoretically uh, at risk of violence, but it's really not the same thing. And studies uh, had shown, have shown that these drone uh, pilots at far removes from the kill sites have greater PTSD than soldiers in the field. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I think that's really profound. So, mm -hmm. so it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a real thing that I relate to. And going back to tree planting, of course, again, a very different situation. They're not at risk of danger, but still in my obsessive investigations of what makes <laughs> communities work, right? Mm -hmm. um, this is an important part of the story. So the person who goes there and is willing to do this difficult work needs to be someone who relates to that kind of uh, camaraderie. And then, and then, of course, tree planting is very non-technological. Um, mm -hmm. And that's the amazing thing that stayed the same in tree planting is that so far, no one has found a better way to plant trees than by hand and shovel. Mm. And that's in these, you know, this terrain, this really rugged, mountainous, often mountainous, often steep, overgrown terrain with it. I mean, it's, it's, it's hard to imagine unless you're there. And even in my, even seeing my film, I think people might not fully grasp it. I think if they walked out to the cut block, they would still stand on the precipice of the road and say, oh my God, I have to walk in that, let alone yeah. plant trees in that. Um, even finding ground is challenging from what well, the finding you can the ground see. is one of the hardest parts yeah I how mean, do you see where you are you know you have to develop very good you, we call it tree eyes bush legs and tree eyes you know the bush legs <laughs> are, you need to be yes. good on your feet you know like you've seen me in my film i am running backwards over obstacles yes. carrying 
a very expensive camera with my assistant, you know, my assistant, one of whom was a, a national champion in canoeing, one of whom is a varsity basketball player, one who is like a super hardcore road racer, a, a bicycle road racer. I mean, super athletes in their early 20s, right? And uh, uh, so this isn't just anybody running around in these cut blocks. And um, so you have to be able to not trip. You have to be super strong. I mean, one of the reasons women are so good at it is it takes a lot of lower body strength, but not so much upper body strength. You're not carrying 50 pound chainsaws. You are carrying 40 pounds exactly. of saplings on your yeah. waist but women are built to carry weight on their waist, right? Mm. So the women work on par with the men. And that is another really, really unusual thing about tree planting. Mm -hmm. And uh, just to like, uh, since I'm on that tangent of women, um, a lot of women tree planters have made art about tree planting. Now, mm. I mentioned earlier all the plethora of literature and writing and poetry and song about war, you know, composed by men because men are the vast majority of mm. the soldiers and of loggers by a long shot. Um, in tree planting, you have all these women who are drawn to that same experience, but until this experience have not had the opportunity to be in this kind of world. And it seems mm -hmm. to have inspired a great number of women to make art and literature about poetry. I mean, Lorraine. Um, yes, you mentioned her, Lorraine. Lorraine yeah. Who, you know, was a great inspiration. Sarah Ann Johnson, who's in the Stephen Bulger Gallery as well. Um, Charlotte Gill, who's written a beautiful Giller Prize winning a poetic book about her 15 years tree planting. Um, uh, Crystal Durkowski's book, um, Six Million Trees, a hilarious account of the brutality of what she underwent tree planting in British Columbia and the party scene that Ontario is more notorious for than, than uh, uh, British Columbia, but they say, you know, you work hard and you party hard and that's, that's, that's no joke. Like, and I was a high baller in the cut block and also, uh, at the parties in the forest in the middle of the night. I mean, you know, including things like taking magic mushrooms in the middle of the forest, which was a pretty amazing experience. And for anyone who's seen the film, you know, I've been sober 15 years. And that's another story that I get to tell through this mm -hmm. project about tree planting is yeah yeah <laughs> I actually I mean you're 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 amazing because it was you're hitting all these points that I really wanted to to underscore and it was interesting because I did not know of Lorraine Gilbert until I read your book and I looked her up and then I'm like wait she's a tree planter so I didn't know of these other women that yeah. have done that but I'm going to circle back for a couple of things so things I want to go Sear, I should say Helen Sear uh, who was the first photographer to publish a book about tree planting that I knew of, like I knew of her, I knew of Lorraine. And when I was out in the bush working on this project, I got a call from Helen Sear who met someone who knew me, who knew I was doing this project. And out of the blue, she called me and she said, you know, when we were all tree planters together, we backed each other up. And I just wanted to know that I'm here for you, still backing you up as an artist. And I had never. Oh, 
That's wonderful. That is such a great thing and story. Wow. Well, you made me, okay, I'm going to go back just for a second. I haven't moved our PDF to give anyone any sense of what we're talking about, but let me just show you. I will go over to, um, to this landscape that is one of the first pictures in your book where you um, unnumbered pages just give us a sense of the vastness and give us the seasons because it is a summer activity to tree plant, but that's a very short season where you're planting. So I'm sure it has a lot of, uh, of different so, so weathers. So what it is, is it's uh, April to around August. And mm -hmm. depending, you can like move up the province as the climate changes. And um, you can't plant in the dead of winter. So this photograph was actually taken in the middle of June mm -hmm. because you're in the mountains and it snows in June sometimes. Mm -hmm. Not a lot, but it happens. So mm -hmm. you can't plant when the ground is frozen. That's the one rule. Mm -hmm. There you go. There you go. Well, it was interesting because you brought up so many points. Um, and, and one of the first ones that I thought of in terms of when I wanted to, to speak to you about this was lighting, because you said something that I wrote down, which was lighting changes a viewer's perception. And I thought, okay, we have got to talk about lighting. And now I've learned that you had so much more uh, of a, of a background in that. Right. And, um, and then you're talking about your innate sense. So I'm wondering as a, as a teacher of photography, do you try to work with your students on developing that sense of use of light? Well, as it happens, I don't really teach practical photography. Mm -hmm. Um, just because it doesn't like, it just doesn't compel me. It doesn't mm -hmm. interest me. Mm -hmm. I mean, people can look at my work and, uh, or, you know, I, what I, what I teach is, is visual vocabulary. Mm -hmm. So I, I taught a course at the university of Toronto, um, where I had guest lectured, uh, quite a bit and mm -hmm. they'd been asking me for years to teach a course and I had to wait till I had time actually. And, uh, I said, well, I love to teach a course, but I want to teach a course on the history of photojournalism and documentary photography, because I wanted it to be something that would be interesting to me. And I mm -hmm. wanted to write a book also. Mm -hmm. And uh, so it needed to be something I could really dig into. I just, I wasn't interested in teaching. I, I, I just felt someone else could teach the practical or mm -hmm. anyways, for whatever reason, I didn't want to do that because I selfishly didn't feel I was going to learn anything from it. Mm -hmm. So by teaching no, I history, yeah. um, I was a much more inspired and enthusiastic teacher, I'm sure, because it was subject matter that I was really engaged with and really interested in. And I read fanatically over these, um, you know, I was always a reader, of course, but, uh, and I've read a lot of theory because of my MA in comparative literature and literary theory. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so, yeah, so that's, that's what I taught. And uh, if I were to teach a practical course, though, um, I've always said that the first thing I would teach is um, file management and digital file management and labeling and all of that stuff, because so many people, I mean, I'm talking about beginners here. If I were to mm -hmm. teach beginner photography, so many people have pictures on their iPhone and, you know, I know the iPhones are great, but like compared to what we can make with 
real lenses and and cameras they're they're crap sorry they just like i haven't really ever seen any convincingly extraordinary iphone photography not when you're looking at actual prints maybe if it lives forever in a digital uh world that might work but i also uh am really interested in the outcome as a as a physical object in a print and i make these very large scale prints or with McLuhan the McLuhan project i made these you know, crazy prints made out of uh, seven, uh, 19th century printing techniques with my collaborator, Bob Carney. Um, and then a film too, the, like the quality of that on like fork, what all these technical things, because mm -hmm. photography is a mechanical art. And so is the, so is the output. So is the projection. I mean, I've been at film festivals where there were problems with the projectors and, you know, I may as well have shot it on a smartphone, you know, like there's so many things have to <laughs> fall into place to make, uh, to make lens-based art work. It's a miracle when it works, you know, like I say in my, my film, you know, shooting those night scenes, mm -hmm. uh, you know, deep in the forest where there are cougars and there are bears and we have no cell phone service and we, we are completely off the grid. And the only thing we've done is left our GPA, the G, GPS coordinates with the base camp that's a hundred kilometers away. And uh, you know, uh, when, when it all comes together, when it all works, you know, uh, quote, it's a fucking miracle. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. But that's what's so amazing. And I think why I spoke about you the way I did, it's this conviction that somehow, you know, and you believe and you and you do what you have to to make that a reality. But what was interesting is when I asked the question about what you would teach, it had to do with this innate sense of composition and lighting, because you said you came with the innate. Yeah, so, so yeah, so I, and then have, the, I, I guess I, that's not true that I haven't taught. I mean, I've given uh, master classes and workshops. So of course I, I've taught, but yep. uh, I'm not showing people how to use lights and things like that, okay. or how yep. to use the cameras. But, yep. uh, uh, and uh and also like, I would never tell anybody else how they should see, like, mm -hmm. I love flash and I, you know, I love Ouija and I love Martin Parr and I love Diane Arbus and I, and I, and, you know, there's so many uh, practitioners who use light and extraordinary and uncanny ways. And I like that. Mm -hmm. I like that uncanniness. I am mm -hmm. really not of the, you know, say the traditional, uh, Henri Cartier Bresson Magnum school of you know fam you know famously Bresson said something to the effect of artificial light is you know offense an, an offense against the natural light mm -hmm. and I've taken pictures in the pitch black like my night forest shots that would not exist without the light of course and you know to to uh, reference Marshall McLuhan the medium is the message you know the most a, a very extreme uh way of seeing that idea if the media is light the message is the light itself we do not see anything but for light so unless you're only going to take pictures where there is already light uh you're you know and also you're you're taking a certain kind of picture when you're relying on the natural shadows and motions you can control composition is kind of your main thing when you're say you're working in black and light and you're not using artificial lighting your main tool is timing and composition you know exceptional mm -hmm. things and people are masters of different things right mm -hmm. and their timing and their their sense of composition add color 
you now have a, another element that you have to control that ha that has to be perfect. And to me, makes it harder. It, it makes mm. it harder. You're adding yet another element that for a perfect photo has to be perfect. And mm. then if you want to have further influence over how people see and what you see, you can add light. And adding the light adds yet another level. But of course, it has to be used exactly in the way you want. I mean, I say to students all the time, making a good photo is easy. Even making a really good photo is pretty easy. And that's when you get an assignment. You know, you, uh, you get an assignment as a professional because you know under any circumstances you can deliver a really good photograph. But to make a photograph that's extraordinary is almost impossible, I think. Say that last part again. To make a photograph that's extraordinary is nearly it's, impossible and, mm -hmm. and will bring you to tears in pursuit of it. <laughs> <laughs> it's very much, it's very Ahab-like, you know? Mm -hmm. I also, of course, I think about, I think about Ahab a lot. <laughs> mm -hmm. I imagine. You know, um, I, wrote, yeah. I wrote an essay about uh, Moby Dick forever ago and uh there's a chapter in moby dick called the whiteness of the whale and mm -hmm. and you know uh it said ahab says the whiteness it was the whiteness of the whale that above, above all things abhorred me and mm -hmm. my essay was about the whiteness of the whale being a metaphor for the blank page and that it's that mm -hmm. the terror of having nothing yet that that abhors one as a, as a writer. And that was back when I wanted to be a writer, when I was like in my 20s, early 20s. And photography is the same thing. And mm -hmm. I'll spend, you know, because the tree planting job was had so much gear because I, I was in Canada, I had my Jeep. I didn't have to minimize my kit the way I had uh, working overseas. So it gave mm -hmm. me the freedom to take it to another technical level. But all this time spent preparing everything, months and months, and being on the road, on my way out, finally getting out there. It's an eight-day drive from Toronto to the cut block in British Columbia. And the night before, the very, the very first night in my tent, it's minus three degrees below zero. It's below freezing. And I'm freezing. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, what have I done? I've got all this gear, but I have nothing in my camera. The empty camera is like a blank piece of paper. Mm -hmm. And that moment, you know, is terrifying. Mm -hmm. And and I did it, every project is the same. Like I, mm -hmm. I, I write in a journal all the time, every project. And every time I say the same thing in the beginning, I say, it's too much. I can't do it. I won't be able to do it. And I look mm. back at that and that's the only way I have the courage to keep going. And it's one picture at a time and that's it. And that's the overriding metaphor of the film too, right? One picture mm -hmm. at a time. You make mm -hmm. an art project, photo project, or a film one picture at a time, one interview at a time, you plant a forest one tree at a time. And then the other really important story for me, important metaphor 
sobriety and recovery, which you do in one day at a time. Exactly. That's so interesting because, so I did, I, you know, these are unscripted conversations. I give it some thought, but I let it rip. And I did some, um, just little uh, underlined categories of like thoughts or something for me, uh, just to move us if we needed to, which we obviously don't because you're giving me a lot and giving us a lot is, um, I had recovery in here and I, and, and I wrote recovery and then I wrote the, the, the quote that's at the, in the book and actually is in my slide presentation, one more tree, one more picture, one more day. And that's a real trilogy of you. And what is really interesting is this contradiction or not contradiction. Well, you're making me think of many things at the same time. When you talk about the blank camera without the film being like the blank page and that terror, it is what I was trying to get at, that you stand at those places, that on this side is, you know, the terror and the blankness and the like empty. And then the other side is all this possibility. And the only way to get there is to walk this ridge. And, um, and then the other things that you underscore and that we've touched on is this level of community, like that extreme community. And, and in terms of veterans, never feeling like they could, like life doesn't, mirror that there's nothing like that level of um, putting life on the line. And when you are a tree planter, you know, working under those grueling conditions, there's the camaraderie of knowing what it takes to do that. And, and then I think of the recovery community um, as another way that, you know, uh, um, takes this idea of addiction where you feel so alone and so nobody can know and then discover that there's a shit ton of people that know and that that is the actual turning point. So that's why it's been so fun to to watch you and try to understand because, you know, I'm there, you know, you're on the lathe and all this wood chips are going all over and I'm trying to collect them and go, what the hell is she doing? Or how is she doing it? Like, it's so incredible. I I'm going all the way back to my first question, because would you say that one of the intentions was to bring respect to tree planters? that you wanted to give them what they. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I'm still really struggling with it in terms of, you know, I mean, the work, as you know, doesn't stop when the work's made, there's the promotion (laughs) and getting out there and, you know, which is why it's it's great to have, to have you appreciate this work so much. Um, You know, you, I submit this film to many, many film festivals, and I know a lot of programmers just look at it and they go, oh, tree planting, who cares? And it doesn't even get seen. And um, Or people just say, oh, we're not interested in this topic, like tree planting, how can that be interesting? And mm-hmm. to try and find a way of framing it and, you know, to say, oh, my quote, tree planting film is actually is also a film about all these other things. Yes. And I mean, there are, there are films about soldiers, certainly where no one says, oh, well, you know, none of our audience are soldiers. So why would they want to watch it? There's an underlying uh, assumption that mm. that's an interesting life. And mm-hmm. with tree planters, no, it's just sort of dismissive. It's young people planting trees. Who cares how powerful can that be? 
And mm -hmm. so it's, I'm still fighting with that. And it's wonderful when people do watch it and look at the work with an open heart and, uh, and open eyes and, and many people are, are blown away. I mean, I get <sighs> feedback from people, but of course it's been dismissed by many, many people. I mean, you know, any artist or anyone who tries to do anything in life knows what it's like to be told that, you know, you're wasting your time. And early on, one of the first people I showed the film to, um, actually said, quote, no one is going to be interested in this. And he watched uh, 10 minutes of it and he said, I can tell right away. And no one who doesn't want a job as a tree planter will be interested in this. And, you know, people ask me, what did you learn? What, what did I learn most making this project? And, and that answer changes all the time. But lately my answer is I've, I've been reinforced in knowing and believing that people are wrong all the time. People mm -hmm. in positions of power, people with lots of qualifications are wrong mm -hmm. all the time. Mm -hmm. You know, that's not to say that there isn't bad work out there, you know, so mm -hmm. of course there is, but, uh, um, but thank God I, I persevere. You know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, it's I so never, funny because I never, I never would have made it. I never, I mean, in fact, I had a producer like five years ago say, no, one's going to care about this. Like she wanted to make a film about me and I'm like, this will, I'll be in this, but <laughs> I'll be in this, but I, I don't want to, you know, I, I want to, I, you know. Yeah, you are so in this. And I guess you're the only one that can do it. And and didn't you say something about um, people talk about doing a reality TV program about them, but yeah. that, you know, they're, that it doesn't happen. And what's interesting to me are, are a few things about what you just talked about is this idea of um, the dismissiveness of it. So the dismissiveness of it makes me think about two things. One is that it is youth driven in the sense that you, this all came on because of a body of youth. And it's also female uh, equal, which is, uh, or even dominant in some cases, which is yeah. also unusual. Yeah. So you're, yeah. you're yeah. bringing that up, but to dismiss it. Yeah. And then also this idea, and I think this is the underlying piece that I came away with. And I think so much more of it is happening because I saw it at Perry Photo this year in more than one case, using the landscape for its reflection of the social, the political, the economic, uh, the, 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 uh, um, uh, an archive. And, and so that's what you're, you're actually really grappling in. And, and I can tell you from having seen the film, I was, I was, I was really curious and I, I loved it because it, in addition to the book, it gave this sense of what you went through because like, you know, you're hearing it and the, you know, the instability, you're part of it, like all the crunch and the stuff that you're trying to even find, like, really, that's why I knew that ground was really hard because there's hardly any except in the camp that you're actually standing on like dirt. Um, so the film really gives all of that feel to it, but it also blended and why I thought of your sobriety because I knew when you have a community like that that works that hard, they are going to play that hard and they're going to have drugs and alcohol and things that are going to be, you know, again, another layer of socio issues 
mm-hmm. thrown in here. And I loved that. I mean, they celebrated your anniversary, um, things like that. It was just like, it was so layered. It was so poignant. So um, amazing. And I've, and- know, I've, I've had a few, uh, well, tree planters come to me who maybe didn't realize, like some of the people in the camp, you know, cause I was there over four years, people got to know me in different ways. Mm-hmm. And a few knew that I was sober. Like when I interviewed uh, Evan about him uh, overcoming his heroin addiction, um, you know, obviously, or not, but he knew about my struggles with, uh, with alcohol and addiction. And mm-hmm. that was the conversation that led me to having him become, you know, the embodiment of this idea, because all the characters in the film represent things that are interesting to me. And, you know, the, this, the, uh, the main protagonists are all young, but in a way, they represent, well, they represent me in my past but from mm-hmm. the perspective of 25 years later like mm-hmm. they are them but we've had so many conversations by the time I interview them and the way that I've selected them and edited in the film that they um you know there's a close relationship between what they say and and what I feel and experience mm-hmm. and um but anyways people who didn't know that I was sober contact like Tara in fact who's in the film and in the book, because it's the same people in the film and in the book, um, contacted me and said, I had no idea you were sober. I've been sober a year. And can we get together? And we've since become very close friends. And we're now collaborating on an art project. And I mean, that's another thing about my projects is I have relate. I, I develop long term relationships with a lot of my subjects, because as you say, I'm not just embedding with them. I'm, I'm living, I'm living mm-hmm. this like, like uh, without a photography project, it's a real struggle for me to know what my life even is <laughs> because I live the work, you know? Yep. Yep. Um, yep. Wow. You actually do. Well, and let me make another point because um, one of the things that I think is key and it came up twice here is this idea of when you said <laughs> what you've learned now is that like, you know, experts don't know a whole lot or that people are actually wrong often. And what you, what I want to underscore, lot, but they still get stuff wrong. Well, here's the thing. Your key to your success is that you listened to yourself. Like your interest is what drove it when you're like, I don't want to teach this because that's not interesting to me, but let's look at photojournalism and look through this lens. That's interest, that connectivity, that, um, relatedness in my mind at punctum is what drives you right and then in terms of this all the naysayers you were like okay well yeah but I'm gonna keep going right and you did so um that ability to follow what interests you ultimately comes out in the end I want to just I have to live it you know like in the end like I'm living my life and Mm -hmm. uh I my instincts have been okay so far you Mm -hmm. know (laughs) Mm -hmm. and I can tell from my subjects what's interesting like what's interesting to them you know as well and I if they're interesting to to me and and they think I'm going in the right direction and they want to talk about these things and we have rich conversations Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I trust that uh, other people will find that as well. Mm-hmm. You know? I, I'm going to look at something um, 
that I didn't realize that I have not been full screen this whole time. I've only used two slides, but I'm trying to, um, let me go through a couple of photographs um, of the tree planters because we're talking about what this is like and what I was so able to get from some of your images. So this one, see how there, there's kind of a feeling of a diorama in this one and uh, mm -hmm. you know, the lighting, it either, it gives it kind of a, a feeling of of well an art an uh, an artificial an art an art artificeness of the images um, mm -hmm. because I'm also I'm trying to invoke painting and classical painting and things that can you know heroicize these mm -hmm. tree planters in ways that soldiers have been heroicized and loggers have been heroicized. And of course, I'm shooting the medium format because I'm going to print, print them extremely large. And I intended uh, them to be hanging in museums and institutions. I, that's what I hoped. And mm -hmm. you know, now all these years later, I can say that's what's happened. So mm -hmm. you know, my, my, that, those goals were achieved. I wanted the, the stature of these youth, of people planting trees, um, to be given this equal, their stature, you know, yes, like, you know yes. we live in a world that, uh, you know, that respects killing more than, than giving life. And, uh, and it's, you know, it's complicated too, because of course, reforestation, if one starts getting into the whole, the whole, what is the state of the forest worldwide and is reforestation the solution or this kind of reforestation? Um, my project is very deliberately about the people doing the work and the work that's being done it's not about the industry the forest industry mm -hmm. although mm -hmm. the film i believe is is probably as good an immersion as one can get into what clear cuts look like mm -hmm. and i meet people all the time particularly in in europe well over in paris at Perry photo recently who 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 actually said oh, you did something about tree planting in Canada? Why would you need to plant trees in North America? Don't you have an endless amount of trees? And I think who today still believes we have an endless amount of anything? You know what? A lot of people do. So people who think there's no point in telling the story are dead wrong uh, because the state of the land is dire. And, you know, Ed Bertinsky is doing lots of work. There are lots of people doing work on this and people I'm inspired by. And, uh, and this, you know, Ed Bertinsky does these incredible landscapes from helicopters. They're shot from mm -hmm. high above. And what I'm doing is I'm going down right into the ground and looking at the, the human solution, not just physically, but metaphorically. It's like, mm -hmm. it's, it's like a call to shovels, you know, a call to arms, mm. but it's a call to shovels because doing this needs, it's going to take work, you know, like mm -hmm. making, making projects and film takes work. I mean, also I get photographers, young photographers, or, you know, people saying, well, how, you know, oh, you're lucky you made this big project. It's like, it, there's no luck. I mean, it's <laughs> luck because I'm still alive, but it's work. It's just work, you know, and yeah, people yeah. have to be willing to do the hard work and, mm -hmm. and it's not glorifying. And, uh, you know, being an artist is not glorifying. Like once in a while you get to have a beautiful conversation like this one. Mm -hmm. And sometimes your work gets shown, but most of the time you're just slogging away in obscurity and, uh, mm -hmm. you have to be making it for some very deep, deep reasons, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I do. Um, and I, I wanted to say for people that are listening, the, the one that you referred to, the, the dioramic use of um, this image is Maria. 
And is it Aguchi? Is it Aguchi? Aguchi. 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 Yeah. And um, she's it was a bug. She's wearing a net because of the, the insects. The bugs. That's what, Some, yeah, sometimes. That's, In this, we have a. Yeah. No, I was just going to say, I was going to say it was the, the conditions. Aren't so bad or he wouldn't be naked. Say that again, that what He's happened? The bugs would, weren't so bad or he <laughs> or Dallas would not be naked. And I couldn't plant naked all the time. It's a sort of a fun thing. Once in a while, someone will do when all uh, is so perfect. And uh, uh, this this uh, photograph, if you, I'd like to point out the, if you look up uh, Caravaggio's uh, St. John the Baptist, this is mm -hmm. like almost exactly that image. And I'm going at this work with a, obviously a big visual vocabulary of classical mm -hmm. painting that mm -hmm. I'm trying to capture in the real world. None of this is staged, of course. Mm -hmm. So capturing the images is unbelievably difficult and uh, takes a lot of everything coming together. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, and just your awareness, I mean, in this, I mean, it was, there were so many layers to this in terms of the fact yeah. that he was naked and I did a double take, like, wait, really? Like that, that doesn't seem um, comfortable. It seems actually really hard. Um, but then this idea of um, how you use the light and the light in the foreground and then those clouds, like it's so, um, you know, the allegorical, yeah, yeah nature. Yeah. Caravaggio is a big influence. And I, you know, I say about these photographs that, that they are photographs that were I to paint tree planters, this is what I would do, but I'm doing it with real moving subjects in a non-staged environment. Mm -hmm. So that's, what's crazy about it. But, um, you know, Caravaggio, one of his discoveries was the idea of the of frozen action. And mm -hmm. so, you know, again, these are not staged. It's a really important part of what they are and what they mean and how mm -hmm. they look. Um, mm -hmm. And it's a frozen, a frozen moment. It had to be high. I mean, they're moving fast. They're not just moving, they're moving fast because they plant, we haven't mentioned that they plant 2000 trees per day or more around that. It's, it's insane. Mm. My goodness. It's um, super fast. I, I, that, I, I still can't get over the amount and it, just even fathoming that, like that repetitive action and that many and, and, and what's expected. It's, it's mind boggling. Um, I'm trying to um, forward our PDF and having an issue. So um, not quite sure why that's my own technical stuff. Um, let me see. But I loved this particular um, image and I did want to share some of the starry nights. But let me ask you this couple of questions before we open up for other people to ask questions. When you went to do the the starry nights, the, the nights in the forest, I want to understand the intention or where that idea evolved from. Um, and my second part to that question is your use of the um, poem of the of the the wolf uh, in in the book. So that's my next part to ask. Okay, so I always knew I wanted to photograph the forest at night because as a tree planter, you know your work happens during the day in the cut block, which is mm -hmm. where the trees have been cut, or maybe they, they, it's a burn area. 
mostly it's areas that have been logged and cut. Mm -hmm. And then on the edges are the margins of the forest. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of a scary place because if you go close to the edge, that's where the animals are and you can't see what's in there. Um, and then that's also generally where you live. Your camp will be closer to the forest. Mm -hmm. And so your nightlife, which, you know, usually you're going to bed really early because you're exhausted. So on work days, you're coming back from the cut block at around seven or seven o'clock and you eat an enormous amount of food and you go to bed and you drop on your pillow and that's it. And then you wake up at uh, 5.30 or six and you're back at it and you are exhausted. Tree planters burn 8,000 calories a day. That's mm. something that's been scientifically mm -hmm. um, researched. It's the equivalent of running two and a half marathons. You are tired at night, but when you have a night off mm. and you're this physically fit, uh, you can still find the energy to stay up. Maybe not all the time, but uh, as a young person, I remember partying in the forest on magic mushrooms or LSD and the experience of the forest at night when you're also you're high and you're in this place in your life where there's all this possibility and but you're scared of what's ahead and um, we called it the kaleidoscopic cathedral of the trees. And mm. I always knew I wanted to try and evoke that feeling. You know, it's like the film, I want the film to show the feeling of the hard labor all the way through, you know, it's kind of relentless. Mm -hmm. It's like, yes, like ski racing, there'd be a lot of ski racing in the film. And to me also planting, it's a, it's a dance. I, I look at it as I would look at an alpine ski. And I used to be an alpine ski racer, by the way. So it's a really apt analogy. And ski racers uh tree planters like ski racers it's just you and your body on the on the land so there are a lot of relationships but uh i always knew i want to photograph the forest in some way uh it was the second part of what i did so the first two years i focused on the portraits mm -hmm. which were the hardest in terms of was i going to get them or was i not going to get them so I really wanted to get those done. So all the portraits are 2016, 2017. We had a big show at the Stephen Bulger Gallery with those portraits. Mm -hmm. And then the next two years, um, and the whole time I'm doing more general documentary stuff in camp and other things and uh, lots of drone work and film and interviews, but of these two formalistic elements, the formal portraits, we call them mm -hmm. the hero portraits and the enchanted forest at night. And mm -hmm. Uh, I figured out what I wanted to do was uh, a combination of, uh, well, there's video motion, video time-lapse pieces that mm -hmm. I did. Um, uh, actually uh, um, inspired by a film called Hale County this morning, this evening by mm -hmm. Ramel Ross, an American filmmaker whose film was nominated for an Oscar documentary film. And he, he was a photographer and he uses a lot of really cool experimental time lapses. And when I saw that, it kind of gave me permission. You know, I was like, mm. I'm going to have fun. I'm going to experiment. So the film uses a lot of experimental uh, techniques that incorporate still photography, because of course I'm a still photographer. It's very much a still photographer's film, 
I mean, mm-hmm. Nina Berman, who I'm sure you know, like mm-hmm. renowned documentary photographer and filmmaker who teaches at, at uh, Columbia, uh, said it was the best film about documentary photography she'd seen. Now that <sighs> is high praise or, you know, yes. maybe one of the best or, but it's like, yeah, seen through that lens, this film is about documentary photography and filmmaking. And you see the making of these night forests. And so uh, the night forests, they represent the margins they represent, you know, they're not pristine forests. They're burnt, they're despoiled, they're stumped, they're, you know, marginal, and they are transitional places. And that's mm-hmm. the, so the, the reason I call them enchanted forests is that I want to evoke this psychological aspect of forests as places mm-hmm. of transformation, uh, as frightening places, as places of growth, and uh, and fear and psychological trauma. Mm-hmm. And because there's something traumatic going on as well here, of course, with these clear cuts and the landscape. And mm-hmm. while I never talk, while I'm, it's not like a scientific look at things, I'm trying to show emotionally what is happening to the land. Mm-hmm. And I'm trying to draw a analogy between the state of the land and the state of ourselves. And we have this devastated, damaged land. And in we ourselves, or in my case, certainly before recovery, dev- self-devastation self, uh, and damage and harm to oneself as we harm our own earth. And so recovery of the land and recovery of ourselves are things that we need to feel in order to actually do something to change it. You know, how do we change consumption? How do we actually care enough? And because I'm an artist, a visual artist, I use that to bring people in to thinking about what's going on. Someone else is going to have to make the film about the science. Um, so <laughs> the so the for the enchanted forests are part of that bigger that bigger narr- narrative and. Um, yeah, that's where the enchanted forests come from. And, and the, the and the text. and the poems, yeah. the texts are they are loosely drawn from Grimm's fairy tales, which are in the public domain and have been translated and rewritten so many times that uh, I don't think anyone really know. And of course, they themselves took them from existing tales. So no one knows what the original script was. And so I took snippets and rewrote some of them and <sighs> uh, and aligned them with the enchanted forests. Okay. I was super curious about that. And I didn't see you answer that question anywhere either (laughs) in the book. Right. So it it just remained this like, okay, wait, where's that? Yeah. I think I talk about uh, enchanted forests and fairy tales, but yeah, I didn't actually say where those came from. Yeah. I wondered about that. And then I was also wondering about the idea that you used the interview format for the other only text in the book. How did that well, creative decision get made? Yeah, so uh, um, I, uh, of course, there were different options I thought about. I thought about having, you know, a, you know, someone like David, asking someone like David Campion to write, you know, what he could have, he writes a lot for Dowie Lewis, actually. So mm-hmm. someone like that to write something mm-hmm brilliant from a perspective of an art historian and a photography specialist. Um, I thought about having a well-known author write something, um, someone like Richard Powers. I don't know if he would have said yes, but I met him in Paris. We were on a panel together and uh, 
it was, it was a really hard decision. I have to Mm -hmm. say, I really, really struggled with it. Um, so Don McKellar, uh, who's a friend, um, and, a, an amazing filmmaker and screenwriter and was someone I talked to a lot during the process of making the work mm-hmm. and, oh, and of course the other option was that I would write an essay. And mm-hmm. I, I think I always thought that I would write an essay regardless. So if someone else wrote something, I would also write something because I'm a writer and I wanted to impart things, certain things. Mm-hmm. And I, I like having control over what I'm showing. And, mm-hmm. uh, um, and, and so I thought, well, a way of making it also how to make it more accessible and digestible and pleasant for people to read and conversations are, are a lovely format for that. Um, there's a really great S- uh, conversation uh, with uh, uh, Michael Andace and, um, uh, oh my God, famous, uh, film editor, losing his name right now, Mass mm-hmm. maybe. And, uh, and I thought, wow, this is a really great, uh, great format. And of course, of course, like a, like a film, like art, I mean, it's my work's documentary, but I'm controlling a lot, as you said, I am very much stepping into the territory of art. I'm controlling things a lot, a lot. Mm -hmm. I'm not just going in and, you know, having no control over anything. I'm controlling everything, including, of course, editing the book and designing Mm -hmm. the book. Mm -hmm. And, um, uh, And as I'm shooting the project, the whole time I'm already thinking about the structure and the layout of the book and where this is going to go and what I need and make sure that I better bloody well make sure at the end of these four years that I have everything I need to go into this book. So mm-hmm. with the conversation, um, Don and I had lengthy conversations beforehand about what we're going to talk about. And I knew I wanted this in there. I wanted that in there. I want to talk about this. I want to talk about that. And we would then go and have our conversation and record it. And then Don, who's a brilliant screenwriter, uh, you know, right now he's uh, got a new incredible project coming out. It's a, it's a television limited series of The Sympathizer by, um, you know, it's going to be extraordinary. Anyways, I knew that, uh, that Don could then take it and use his skills as a screenwriter and shape it into something uh, uh, tight and energetic. And that's mm-hmm. what we did. It was maybe an hour and a half of recording uh, an inter- a conversation that we had been talking about for years. And then Dawn going in there and crafting it into something like this. Mm-hmm. And then of course me getting to read it and having ultimate control over everything. So the, any idea that this is just a natural conversation between two people, well, it is, but it's not. And, uh, and then we have a great rapport, you know, like the back and forth. We wanted that, Mm -hmm. we wanted him to play a bit of the devil's advocate. And, you know, so that there is this tension and it's Mm -hmm. also very reflective of our, our, uh, our intellectual relationship as well. So. um, Well, it's also kind of like uh, the art form of film, right? Like, that's interesting that you did a film in addition to the book. And then in the book is this thing that you know, all I can think of is my dinner with Andre. It's like, you know, you're using conversation like that. Absolutely. And I did want there to be some direct overlap with the book to the film because the film is so clear. You can so clearly see the book 
in the film and the way yeah. that the film is structured. This film was structured by someone who thinks in photo book. You know, mm -hmm. it's a photographer's film and it's a film by someone who has designed photo books and thinks that way. And I, I just, you know, like with my McLuhan book, I just decided to make it how I wanted it. And my mm -hmm. editor, Darby McInnes, is fantastic. And he's, I trusted him so much. I mean, his, his work with the interviews, I mean, that's all him. Like I, we picked the interviews and he went and we said, and I said, this is what I want it to be. And he would go in and create these little pieces out of these long interviews. And then I would hand him the visual material that gets laid on top. And he was always very open when I said, you know, I want to have a sequence of stills photographs set to music that are going to tell this story. And he never, and I want to have, you know, the stills merge into the film. And, and he, he was so open to working me, with me this way and, uh, you know, not fighting me on it. And, uh, you know, I'm sure some producers might've said, oh, well, uh, people have different opinions. I've had people say, well, you should not be in the film and the stills shouldn't be in the film. And, and I'm like, well, then what the hell is it? And it's your film. You know, you make yeah, it. Exactly. That's like, what I mean. I you do film, it but... your way. That is so, so interesting. You know what I'm saying? That's another way of, of your vision. I only have one life, you know, and, mm -hmm. uh, and what I leave behind, like actually want it to be mine, even if maybe someone else might've done it better. Um, sure. People do things better than I do, but then it's mm -hmm. not, it's not mine, you know? Oh God. Um, I love that ownership. I'm, I'm thinking of two things. I'm going to stop the share so we can see each other. And I'm going to open up to anyone who wants to ask you a question as well, but I've got one last piece of, of, of curiosity. And that is the, um, Canadian-ness of, of, of everything, right? Like, I think it's so interesting. Marsha McLuhan is Canadian, Lorraine Gilbert, Canadian, like, and this idea of the tree planters and the mythology of Canada, yeah. um, you know, so I don't know enough about it, but I wondered if that is something you were aware of embracing. Well, I'm definitely Canadian. <laughs> my work you know and I would say even uh you know my uh my long project on uh the American cavalry in Iraq crazy horse in Iraq you know like mm -hmm. that story I feel unfolded differently because of where I came from as a Canadian and certainly as a as a woman as well right mm -hmm. um but uh I mean the the McLuhan project I had gone to as you said I went to Afghanistan with the American Marines with an American project but I was teaching at the University of Toronto at the time. I was doing a lot of reading of history. I was sort of in the process of writing a chapter for the Rutledge um, uh, Companion to Visual Culture, mm -hmm. sort of uh, about war photography. I like all this stuff is all in my head. And my, and my office at the University of Toronto overlooked the building where Marshall McLuhan held his famous conferences. And the building is still is still actually there. It's in the middle of a parking lot. And until very recently, it had been kind of abandoned and they were recently trying to do something with it. Mm -hmm. um, and so 
I was in in the middle of this world, you know, I'm actually in the, in the world of Northrop Frye and there's this other, you know, story of the kind of rivalry between the college that had Northrop Frye and the college that had McLuhan. And when I uh, was in graduate school in the early 90s, McLuhan was considered kind of an outlier because of his interest in the media and television. And as recently as the early 90s, it wasn't considered serious and we did not study Marshall McLuhan. Um, but, wow. you know, life is full of, you know, things happen because of coincidences and passings and, and, you know, surprising moments. And when I came back from Afghanistan, I was depressed for reasons I talk about in my McLuhan book, which is also mm -hmm. very biographical. And, uh, I did, right here. I did leave my house for for nearly two months. I was mm. that uh, glum. Mm. And a friend of mine said, look, hey, you got to get out of the house. There's a, a lecture happening right now because it happened to be the 100th anniversary of the birth of Marshall McLuhan. And there were all these conferences going on. And I went to this conference and they had a last minute change of speaker and uh, so to my surprise, the speaker was my old professor and friend, uh, Peter Nusselroth, who's brilliant and a semiotician and who sadly mm -hmm. passed away during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. But uh, Peter, who, uh, who used to love saying that he was my muse because he gave this talk and in it, he started talking about smartphones, technology and Marshall McLuhan and the Arab Spring. And I suddenly had was like a light bulb went off and I had a way of making sense of this experience I had had in Afghanistan using <sighs> smartphones and social media and and Facebook and Twitter and the history of photography and uh, military technology and the failure of the war in Afghanistan and language which I was of course I'm obsessed with language I read grammar books for fun or anyone who knows <laughs> who knows that's true and as I was sitting in this audience, the title came to me looking for Marshall McLuhan in Afghanistan, but I didn't really know much about Marshall McLuhan because we hadn't studied him in university. But of course, if I hadn't been in Canada in Toronto at that time, that never would have happened. And I contacted at the time the Literary Review of Canada, which had been asking me to do something about my time in Afghanistan. They were just building their first website you know, early 90s, not so long ago, their first website. And they're like, well, it would be great because you are someone who crosses the literary and the visual. And would you do something? And I said, no, I never want to think about that again. And I called them and I said, I have a title, but I don't know anything about Marshall McLuhan. So you're going to have to give me some time. It took a full year. I did a 12 part series for the Literary Review of Canada. Wow. They, I also because of a series of coincidences, I was approached to do a book that took me another two years. And that's the book that you are holding in your hands. And wow. again, it was very important for me to take all this digital media I had made on my iPhone and make something, a physical object out of it. Also an ongoing, you know, theme in my work. Mm -hmm. But yeah, mm -hmm. I, cause I spent so much time in Canada, Canadian things happen to me. <laughs> And then I bring it out into the world. It's just, it's a part of who I am for sure. Well, it was interesting because I remember um, myself as a backpacking across Europe college student and the, um, and then 
and the Canadian flags that would be put on backpacks because it was like, excuse me, I don't want to be confused with being an American, right? So I just thought it was interesting that a lot of the the connectivity that you make is has such a strong Canadian connection. And it made me think of this idea, again, of um, community and of being an outsider on some level, yes. right? Yeah. Like, we're, you know, sorry, but you're not, you know, that that has to have that kind of relationship yeah. when you've got yeah. us as a neighbor, um, you know. Uh, well, it's fun. No fun apologies. Say but. that because just yesterday, I was telling someone about how when I was in Iraq, and of course, the Americans were very unpopular. Uh, I was one of very few Canadians there. Like, I think I knew, you know, Adnan Khan, I don't know, very few other yep. Canadians. And hi, Adnan, he's not listening to this, but a wonderful writer and friend. Uh, and uh, whenever I told people I was Canadian, like, they would say, oh, my God, there are so many Canadian journalists here. <laughs> and it was hilarious, because of course, everybody was lying, but I wasn't. And I think even you were the were real like, deal. People just assumed I wasn't Canadian because everyone lied. And then someone joked that I should give like, you know, little like tutorials. So if anyone got kidnapped and needed to prove they were Canadian, you know, they would know who Leonard <laughs> Cohen was. And, uh, you know, they would know a little bit about the Toronto Maple Leafs. <laughs> Well, I have to say one thing that did happen because of this is that it made me revisit that. Um, for lack of a better term, I wouldn't say prejudiced. I would say um, ignorance of that difference, right? You know, that that I don't think that the Americans know enough about our neighbors. Right, right, right. Well, I mean, there's probably, sadly, less and less difference. Um, I mean, and if, you know, of course... America is our closest neighbors culturally we share so much and you know mm -hmm. uh certainly you know I lived in New York for seven years um but uh yeah when people think that Canada is socialist for instance or communist you know they know very <laughs> they don't they don't get it there are a lot of people who don't understand the politics up here and that we are also shifting over to populism in some circles and it's terrifying, um, you know, yeah, because the influence, we can't help but be influenced, right? Yeah. Well, I've got one last question and that is um, when you said your, your, your life is your work, is there something on the horizon or are you spending time trying to make um, Forest for the Trees more known? Like, I, like, I mean, there is that time after a project is physically yeah. being compiled to actually give it its due. So I totally understand that that's a part of now, but, and I think that you're open to serendipitous for what could come next, but I just didn't know yeah. where you were in yeah. that process. Yeah, well, it's been two years of uh, promoting it, and I am getting to the end of that intensive phase. I just, I'm mm -hmm. actually exhausted from, you know, like I have a film screening in a couple of days in Toronto, and I, it's, it's, uh, I'm billing it as the last in-person screening mm -hmm. in the foreseeable future. Uh, uh, and uh, I have, you know, some more emails to send out. And I just, if I have to wake up one more day and send out a bunch of emails asking people to, you know, buy my work and look at my work, like it's really hard. Mm -hmm. um, 
And, uh, but I shot two projects during the pandemic uh, that also I was, you know, living the pandemic. And of course I had to make work during that time because, mm-hmm. because I had, it had to be about the pandemic. It had to be about the life I was living, whatever, li- in whatever limits and parameters that was. And I was in Toronto and I had to social distance. So I have these two projects that now I'm trying to uh, get out They're on my, they're on my readalicener.com website. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, they're called pandemic projects. Uh, yep. So I'm trying to get those out. I am really happy. The pre pictet is uh, putting some of them in an upcoming book they're doing. It's called uh, uh, collage women of the pre pictet since 2008. And I was really mm. thrilled. They wanted to even see the pandemic work, let alone, you know, put it out there in this really, great context um mm-hmm. so I'm trying to get that out I went to Houston Photo Fest I got to follow up with a bunch of that but in terms of like I need to make something new I mean I don't know I'm looking around me there's snow outside I'm in Montreal I moved to Montreal at the end of the <sighs> second year of the pandemic um I have some ideas of doing something more fictional uh one thing is that I feel that I'm moving to definitely strongly, absolutely moving toward fiction, uh, even if it overlaps with my own life. The pandemic led to my first ever absolutely direct self-portraiture, although I'm in it with other people. The tree planting project really began that. And then the pandemic forced it upon me and I was ready to embrace it and but it's still always about community and so yeah maybe it's something in Montreal maybe it's something about uh finding a life in Montreal and through that process of discovery building an art project of some kind that will both imprint itself on me as I imprint myself on the city Mm, imprints I like that wow well I will be I will be all ears. And I'm just thinking that I might tip off uh, a, an American friend living in uh, your city to go to oh. the screening. <laughs> oh, it's in Toronto. The screening's in Toronto. Oh, it's in Toronto. Okay. In Toronto on Monday. Yeah. Which okay. Is so my, in is my hometown, which is where I was born. Where you're from. Yeah. It's going to be the, the biggest screening yet. We already oh, did a sold out screening in Toronto um, about a month ago, but. Yeah. Any more, so no more screenings in Montreal. No. Nope. Well, I mean, we might, you know, down the road possibly. Yeah. There's something called exactly. Cinema Politica that uh, your friend might know about at Concordia. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, for now, I'm 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 taking a break from from trying to get screenings. And uh, there are still some festivals. I get screening in Israel in a couple of weeks, but I'm not going. And I just got back from Barcelona, where it won a prize, and that was so fun. And uh, mm-hmm. Uh, yeah so, amazing. France, so you know I want to find somewhere in Paris in France but I'm going to wait till next year and uh the the intense intense you know as you know I, I, I crowdfunded to make the book mm-hmm. and uh uh I pre-sold I mean I it was pre-selling yep. the book which is actually a great thing to do not just because you need the money to make the book I mean this book cost uh $70,000 to make I think mm-hmm. was it something like that mm-hmm. give or take $10,000 and Dowie Lewis paid for some of that and I have to raise money for some of it mm-hmm. and but those campaigns are great because they get the word out and people exactly. know, know about it and 
but holy moly, is that a lot of work. I worked for 40 days straight, minimum 12 hour days, sending emails, sending emails. Like I haven't stopped doing that. And I, I just feel like, oh my God, like people must be so sick of hearing from me, but <laughs> there's no other way to do it. And I'm, I'm fortunate. No one yet. I keep thinking someone's going to write to me and say, stop, you know, but no one has, I'm sure lots of people delete my emails, but no one's told me to stop sending them anything. Wow. You're, but, you uh, are, you are relentless. Rita, thank you so much for all of this. I really appreciate it. Thank you. It's been wonderful. You're welcome. All right. Take care. Bye. Bye. Thank you for joining our conversation. We love your feedback and hope you will rate and review this podcast. Our episode notes detail our content with hyperlinks to resources accompanying visuals, and an archive of more than 50 of our podcasts, plus our artist talks, are available on my website, jsibillasmith.com. Find them under the In Conversation tab on my navigation. You will find further information about my services under Offerings on my website. I look forward to working with you.